0: Today, Isaiah chapter 52 through chapter 53 verse 1. We're going to go from 52.13 to 53.1 in a message that I've entitled, Redeemed Without Money. So before we jump into it, let's stand to our feet and let's ready our hearts in a word of prayer. God, surely your word is a fire, and it burns the chaff, it purifies our hearts. Surely your word is, is water that washes over and cleanses us. Surely your word is life. God, your, your word is like a well-driven goad that pricks us and directs us in corrects us. Your word is like a seed that seeks deep root in the soil of our hearts. And so God, we pray that you would have your way, that you would speak to us, that you would touch us, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that your word, which always goes forth and accomplishes the purposes for which you send it, which never returns void to you, Lord, that you would have your way here today. We love you. We offer this time to you. Give us ears to hear you, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat there? Guys, sometimes you don't know how to say what it is that you want to say. And what I mean by that is, as the Apostle Paul has said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, it is beneficial for a number of things, for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, that is pointing out sin, for correction, saying you need to stop that, and for instruction, saying you need to start this in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And again, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, I would never seek to infer, I would never want to imply that any one portion of Scripture is somehow more important than the other. Yet by the same token, though all mountains are majestic, some peaks stand higher than others. And as it pertains to the mountaintops of the Word of God, surely it is the Everest of summit peaks that we embark upon in this, our current section of Scripture. Guys, it is the sacred section of sacred sections. It is the Holy of Holies, if you will allow me. And the reason that it's the highest peak, it's the Everest, if you will, is because it takes us, the Mount Everest of Scripture takes us to Mount Calvary. And it's without a doubt the most widely known portion of the book of Isaiah. It's quoted from, it's referred to, it's pulled out of by those who penned the New Testament dozens and dozens of times. And we know that the servant that comes into focus for us in this passage is none other than God's Son, our Savior, the person of Jesus Christ. And we know that because the Holy Spirit reveals that to us in those passages in the New Testament from which it is quoted with specific reference to being fulfilled in Christ. Matthew applies this passage to Jesus. Jesus himself quotes from Isaiah 53 in Luke 22 and applies it to himself. John applies it Jesus. Paul the Apostle applies this passage to Jesus. Peter applies this passage to Jesus. Philip in the book of Acts in the eighth chapter applies this passage to Jesus Christ. Over and over again throughout your New Testament, it's either quoted from directly or alluded to or taken from and applied specifically to Christ. Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, there is simply no doubt that the servant in view throughout this section of Scripture is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the snapshot that we have here is one of his suffering and rejection. However, the primary point is that his suffering will lead to his exaltation and triumphant success before the Father... And that his rejection will lead to our redemption. Praise God. It wasn't his sin he suffered for. He had no sin. He suffered for your sins and for mine. Now, back in verse 3 of chapter 52, we read, For thus says the Lord, You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. And what begins to come into focus for us here is the radical cost of our redemption. As the Apostle Peter put it, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so with these things in the forefront of our heart, let's take a look beginning in verse 13 of chapter 52. In fact, we'll just read the whole little section of Scripture that we're going to look at today, and we'll come back and begin to parse it, pick it apart from there. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what, he, or for what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, for many believers, there's actually a bit of astonishment how that anyone, perhaps even especially a Jewish person, could read this section of Scripture and somehow completely miss Jesus, you know, not see Jesus. Now, uh, in fairness, you know, that's not true of, of all. Some don't miss him. Some see Jesus, are converted to faith in Jesus. However, many, many others just don't see him at all. But I'm not sure that we should really be surprised by that because, listen, When someone makes up their mind about who Jesus is, be it a a well-meaning historical figure, perhaps a prophet, or maybe even the fictitious character of man's imagination, it is very easy then to become blind and deaf to the plain, simple, straightforward message of the Word of God. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, hear me on this, it is so dangerous to become a person who simply agrees or goes along with the crowd or to trust whatever you're told without ever doing your own personal verification with regard to the information that you're given. Listen, what I'm saying is just because you read it on the Internet, it doesn't make it true, okay? Okay. Even within the confines of the church, you want to make sure that you are being given the truth of what the Word of God teaches. And when it comes to something, listen to me, when it comes to something as critical as your salvation, as critical as your eternal destiny, you better know that you know what it is that you believe and why it is that you believe it. Well, you know, I heard some college professor blowing holes in Christian theology and it seemed to make sense when he said it. So, I mean, that's what I believe. Really? You're going you're gonna to go with that? Th- that's the hill you're going you're gonna to put your stake, your claim in? And that's the hill you're going to die on? Well, listen, I, I, I listened to someone who used to be a Christian and he was telling me the problems that he had with it. Well, you know, I don't really know, but I'm not really too worried about it. Listen, you need to be worried about it. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anyone else's word for it. Listen to me. No one is going to stand with you before God. You're going to be there all alone. You need to see for yourself what the scriptures teach and decide for yourself what you're going to believe about who Jesus is. It reminds me, it takes me back in my mind to that situation. Perhaps you can see it in your own mind's eye. There they were, Jesus with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and he came to them and he asked of them and he said to them, who do men say that I am? You know, what are the crowd, what's the general buzz about me with regard to the general population you see? What are people saying about me? And he's in Caesarea Philippi. This place is literally littered with idols. He's probably leaning up against one of the so-called gods there that have been carved out. And he's like, what do people say about me? And, you know, and they look at him and they say to him, well, you know, some think maybe you're John the Baptist. You know, some maybe, you know, maybe you're Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he looks at them and he says to them, he asks of them the single most important question that anyone could be confronted with. Your eternal destiny weighs in the balance. It is swinging on the hinge of the answer to the question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Jesus makes it personal. You need to know what you believe about Jesus and why you believe it about Jesus, who do you say that he is? And of course, that's when Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That is on this confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, and of course, he said, "Whatever you bind on heaven, in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose, in, heaven will be loosed on earth, and all of that." But the confession: Who do you say that I am? And there are two things that God wants us to know about His servant before He even breaches the subject of His suffering. Number one, you see it in verse thirteen: He will deal prudently, and number two, He will enjoy tremendous victory. That is, He will be exalted highly. Number one, he will deal prudently. Now, maybe your Bible says he will act wisely. Uh, Perhaps it reads, uh, he will prosper. The point is that what he does will exude wisdom, will lead to the success of his mission. The idea here, ladies and gentlemen, is that the cross wasn't a failed mission attempt, as though Jesus came for one thing, but was put to death instead. No, no, no. The the suffering of the Messiah would signal his success. And Paul talks about this, how he made a public spectacle, the spiritual warfare, how he overcame it through the cross. Which leads to the second thing. He will enjoy triumphant victory, pointing ultimately to his resurrection and subsequent exaltation to the right hand of the Father. You've read through your New Testament. You remember there in the book of Philippians when Paul was writing and he spoke of the suffering of Jesus Christ and his obedience to the Father and the taking on the form of the servant, the bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men and how he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And he said, Therefore, because of this, God also has exalted him, highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Come on, somebody. Of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, having said all of that, allow me to say this as well. There in verse 13 of chapter 52, the word extolled literally means lifted up. Now, some of your Bibles may read, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But what I want to point out to you is that this word translated lifted up is the same word that Jesus picked up on in John chapter 12 when he said, and I, if I am lifted up, word translated extolled here, if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all peoples to myself. But then we read this. This he said signifying by what death he would die. In other words, when Jesus grabbed this word and applied it to himself, he didn't use it with reference to being lifted up or magnified in praise. He spoke with reference to being lifted up off the earth and nailed to a cross, and this would make for the salvation, that salvation would be available to every tribe and tongue and nation in every place through the lifting up of his body upon the cross, you see. And so it's very possible that we see a reference to both his condemnation here in verse 13 being lifted up through that bringing salvation and his subsequent exaltation to follow. Well, it's no wonder then, is it, in verse 14, that it speaks of the astonishment that startles and staggers the people when they understand the message of the gospel. This man who was condemned has himself demonstrated that all of humanity is condemned unless they turn from their sin and trust in him. Uh, it's been said you can't rejoice in the good news of salvation until you first understand the bad news of condemnation. Jesus wasn't tortured and put to death because he was guilty. Ladies and gentlemen, he was tortured and put to death because we were guilty. And once people understand this, Well, in the modern vernacular, we would say, it blows their minds. That's verse 15. That's that's Isaiah's way of saying, shuts their mouths. It blows their mind. Uh, There are no words. I mean, what can we say? So his visage verse 14, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And so here, Isaiah begins to inform the reader or the hearer of the suffering that would come upon our Savior. His visage was marred more than any man. What that means is that his face would be so... His visage, his, the vis, what you see, his face would be so disfigured that by the time they were done with him, he wouldn't even be recognizable as a man. It would just be a swollen, bloodied, mangled mess your tendency would be to turn away. You'd be so shocked. You'd be so startled by what you saw. You know, if you've ever had the misfortune to... uh, I left my water. It's okay. If you've ever had the misfortune to come upon a car accident and perhaps someone has been thrown through the windshield. You know, when I was a young man, uh, I and um, a work crew that I was with, we were driving to a job site. It was raining. You know, we came around a corner and, uh, thank you, Abby, there was someone just standing out uh, on the side of the road, just This was like cell phones were like barely in existence. Service everywhere was terrible, you know. So there's this person, they're standing out on the side of the road, they're flailing, they're flagging desperately, frantically. And we pull over, and I look out into the field, and there's a car, it's overturned out in the field. You know, it's pretty fresh. Tire spinning, you know, you've seen it. And uh, so we run up through the mud and the rain-filled ruts that the car had formed from flipping and spinning and all of the things. And there was this elderly lady, and she was laying with her body. She was inside the car. You'll forgive me if I get a little misty, but she was inside the car, and her body was like parallel to the dashboard. She was kind of laying across the car like that, uh, and one of her legs somehow wrapped in the in the the steering wheel, and uh, she was laying across like th- from the driver's side out the passenger side, and uh, her her head. So her body was in the car, but her head was laying out of the car. So it was like three quarter in, one quarter out, right? And it's it's laying in a in a rut and all, and uh, her face. And I'm going to spare you some of the details. But her face was so mangled. It was so swollen. So muddied and bloodied and disfigured. Man, the only way that I could tell she was a woman was when I looked up in the car. She was wearing a a skirt. I could see by her clothes. I could tell by her hair that it was a, a woman. Other than that, I'm telling you, you just couldn't look upon it. There was just something that made you turn away. R- read the Gospels. Jesus had his beard ripped from his face. They blindfolded him and beat him. They they placed a crown of thorns on his head and they beat him over the head with a rod. His face was unrecognizable, you see. His form or his figure, his form was marred or disfigured more than the sons of men. In other words, by the time the scourging was finished, his whole body just looked like a bloody, just bloody strips of quivering human flesh. The scourging was done with what's called a cat of nine tails, a leather whip with nine leather straps attached to it. And embedded within each strip would be bone or shards of of glass or lead or just whatever they could find. And it was simply a, a brutal interrogation method that was meant to extract the confession of crimes. And so if you would confess, so they would begin this third degree, the whipping process. And there was usually two, one, you know, so you wouldn't get tired. They would, they would back and forth, bam, bam, bam. Um, and uh, if you would begin to confess, then they would lay the whip across you with uh, less and less intensity. The idea was to give you incentive, incentive to confess, you see. But if you stayed quiet, if you would not confess, then they begin to flail you with greater and greater intensity. And so he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. He he had no crime to confess. He'd done nothing. And so... His entire torso would have just been flayed wide open. You know, perhaps one of the reasons that God shrouded the earth with darkness for three hours, when Jesus was on the cross, not only because the earth was in darkness and it would be apropos to the situation that he was signaling, But Jesus wasn't there to satisfy the morbid curiosity of the onlooker. He was there to pay the price for the sins of the world. When you get to Revelation chapter 5, it's interesting, you you find John, and there he is. And he's just sobbing convulsively. Why? Why? Because there was no one found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to step forward and to take the scroll from the right hand of him who sat upon the throne and to loose its seals. And so there he is, he's weeping. The word literally is sobbing convulsively. And one of the elders steps up to him and he says, don't weep. He says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And John, the Bible says, John looked, but do you remember what he saw? He saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus bearing the marks of Calvary. And it's as if... In that moment, all of heaven suddenly gains just a glimpse of what took place, of the price that was paid, and you and me, we will be there. And we will all fall down. This is when we all fall down at his feet and sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And and again, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And with one voice, we'll all cry out, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And I can't wait. It's interesting, after Jesus had risen from the dead, and there were several encounters that Jesus had, post-resurrection encounters that he had, a number of them with his disciples. And it's like, as you read through, it's like they knew that it was him uh, by the things that he did, by the way that he spoke, you know, the, the, the way that he would move and minister amongst them, it's like they knew it was him. But they didn't recognize him. And they were afraid to ask, like, is it really you? And he, he knew that. I mean, he picked up on that. And so he would go ahead and confirm it for them. You know what I mean? He would say things like, go ahead, touch me, handle me. You can see. It's me. Don't be afraid. It's not a spirit. I have flesh and, and bone and all. You got something to eat around here? And he would just ease them and and bring a peace to them. But most likely, he didn't look the same as he did previously, having the scars of disfigurement remaining upon him, badges of his matchless love for you and for me. Think about that. Now, in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. And so here we're told that uh, what the Messiah would accomplish would not be limited in its scope. He shall sprinkle many, that's the word, many nations. In other words, uh, Israel's Messiah, yes, but the Savior of the world. The idea behind this word sprinkle has to do with the ceremonial cleansing rites found in the Mosaic Law. What's being said here is that the shedding of His blood would bring about the cleansing of the nations. Uh, Salvation will be freely given, to all who will believe upon him. And again, this is why kings shall shut their mouths at him. He was brutalized, mistreated, condemned as a criminal. Yet the glory of his great work will stop every word. The idea here is they will be horrified by what he suffered and humbled by Why he suffered. You see. Now, in the first verse of the 53rd chapter, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, we have here uh, what we might refer to, what I refer to as prophetic anticipation. Isaiah sees two things coming down the prophetic pipeline as it pertains to this message. First, he gathers the counterintuitive paradoxical dilemma that people will struggle with. It seems contradictory in nature that a suffering servant you know one whose visage was marred more than any man is simultaneously the salvation and the cleansing of the nations secondly he anticipates the rejection of such a message such a messiah i mean who who will believe our report The prophet had then the same struggle that any who would proclaim the gospel will have today. Unless a person's heart, listen to me, unless a person's heart is ignited by faith, they won't believe the message of the cross. It's so counterintuitive. It is so fantastical. It is so incredible, yet so simple. It must be impossible. I mean, how can it be? People don't want to believe that they have a real problem and that a Savior had to suffer so that they could be justified, that is, made right in the sight. Of God. They want to believe that I'm okay, you're okay. They want to follow, as as one commentator put it, the Pied Piper of liberalism that has a tune that they can all dance to, makes them feel like everything's going to be okay. It's not okay. Paul told the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's crazy to me the foolish preaching that so many people cling to, yet the message they need to cling to, so many count as foolish. What does the Bible say? But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Ladies and gentlemen, it's true. God doesn't do things the way that man would do things. He doesn't use man's methods. He doesn't have man's message. God uses the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty. The foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Who has believed our report that God has become a man and as a man died for the sin of mankind? That's a lot to take in. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's kind of another way of asking the same question. To whom has the salvation Of the Lord been revealed. Well, it's been revealed to you, praise God. Aren't you grateful? (laughs) And I pray that it's been going to be, if not, revealed to every heart here today before we leave. But what I want you to pick up on here is the apparent contrast, and we're not far from finished, ladies and gentlemen, stick with me. The apparent contrast between the strong arm of the Lord and the apparent weakness of a suffering Savior. When Isaiah speaks of the arm of the Lord, what you need to understand, this is like a euphemism. This is like um, another way of speaking of... It's a, it's a picture of, of power and strength. The arm of the Lord. It's like rolling up your sleeves, Okay? is what he's saying, like rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. It's a picture of overcoming a tremendous undertaking. Does this make sense? But what is so amazing here is that the strength and power of God will be expressed through what appears to be the weakness of our suffering Savior. And this is what I want to leave you with today. The tremendous cost to God and the tremendous power of God in accomplishing our salvation. By way of comparison, just so that you understand what I'm trying to say to you, when God created... Think about Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the vast... Expanse of the universe in all its variety and all its complexity and all that it contains, you see, from things so so huge and gargantuan they're beyond our comprehension to things so microscopic we, we need like high powered microscope type things to even realize they exist. Okay? When God created all of this, the Bible says that it was the work his fingers. It's in Psalm chapter 8. When I consider your heavens. Whose are they, by the way? They're gods. He created them. Notice, the work of your, what's it say? Your Your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him the psalmist being so overwhelmed by the fact that creation is so vast and beyond comprehension, so enormous, and yet we're such a small speck in in the grand scheme of things, and and yet God has loved us and given himself for us. It's, It's overwhelming. When the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt... Exodus chapter 13 and verse 3 tells us that it was by the strength of His hand. But in order to bring salvation, to eradicate and eliminate the penalty of sin, He had to bear, He had to reveal His mighty arm. And now you know What Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1 when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The free gift of salvation is an incomprehensible demonstration of the power of God. Yet people refuse to believe. Well, again, I say, may that not be said of any heart here today or within the sound of my voice. The reason salvation is free for you is because it costs God everything. He gave his only begotten Son to die upon the cross. Redemption is an infinite task that only our infinite God could perform. Redeemed without money. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. God, we, uh, we really don't know how to pray or what we can even say after a word like we've received today. But we find it in our hearts, God, to thank you and to thank you and to thank you. And we worship you, we adore you, Jesus. That you would humble yourself. Take the form of a bondservant and be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so we say, be exalted, be glorified, be magnified, for you alone are worthy to receive all honor, all glory, all power, all praise forever and ever. And I would just say that while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you've not readied your soul to stand before God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to do that today. Believe in Jesus and you'll never perish but have everlasting life. Forgiveness is free to you. It costs God everything. Honor Him. Humble yourself before Him. Receive Him. He's ready to reveal to you the strong arm of His salvation. But God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. And So if you need Christ to come into your life to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of your sin, surely faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so don't resist the work that God wants to do in your heart and in your life. Receive it. Don't harden your heart. Open your heart. And so if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart and today is a day of salvation for you, I don't know, maybe you guys all know the Lord. You love the Lord. I think that's great. But maybe, just maybe, there's one or three or four or five that are here today that you've... You've heard it before. You know about church. You, yeah, you believe God exists and all that. But as for Christ being the King, enthroned upon your heart, well, that's not true, is it? Not for you. But it can be. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. If that, if that's you, I want to pray for you. If if, if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart, today's a day of salvation, can I pray for you? If you'd say, yeah, please pray for me. Just raise your hand. If I see your hand, I'll say so. You can put it back down. But I just want to give you a second to not worry about who you're here with or who's around you or whatever's going on outside these walls, you know, in your life, this and that, but like right here, right now, what's God doing in your heart and in your life? If you need Him, let's pray. Let's get it done. Anyone I can pray for? God bless you, man. Anyone else? I see you. Yeah, God bless you too, man. That's awesome. Anyone else, today is a day of salvation for you. Okay, guys. Well, then without delay, I'm just going to lead you in a little prayer. And, and you, don't, you don't have to pray out loud. You're welcome to. But this, this you need to know too, that just praying a prayer doesn't save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And God is looking to your heart. For if you believe in your heart that Christ died for your sins. And so just come before Him. Just humble yourself before God. I mean, if if it were me, I would in my heart just be on my face. And you say, oh God, you know, here I am. It's me. And I have sinned. And I fall short of your glory, God. I'm not making excuses for my sin. I'm not somehow trying to wax over, or justify my sin, I'm confessing. And I humble myself before you. And God, I just ask forgiveness from you. That you would come into my heart. That you would take your place upon the throne of my heart. Be the king of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me to lead my life for you, oh God. Be real to me. Make your word real to me. God, be glorified in me. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. So I want to encourage you, if you pray something like that, God is, as I said, searching your heart. And the Bible says that if anyone be in Christ, that old things pass away. I'm telling you something. The one person you came in here as, that guy's dead. Been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you in the life that you now live. You live by faith in the Son of God who has loved you and given himself for you. And so you leave here a new creation, brand new, clean slate. Receive it, rejoice in it. Father, we love you. We give praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.